if Netanyahu is replaced, there will be increasing talk about let us revitalize the so-called peace process, which has been a recipe for allowing Israel to commit war crimes, invasion and assaults as much as it did, and all while maintaining the myth that there is an end to all this, which is peace. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my co-host Asa Winstanley, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Asa, how are you? I'm excellent, Nora. Um, Good evening from London, and uh, good afternoon where you are. Is that right? Afternoon? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's good enough, yeah. Um, Before we get into uh, the meat of our podcast, which I'm really excited about, um, I wondered if you had any updates on Labor Party, uh, the Labor Party conference, which you've been um, restricted from going to, and uh, and some of the news from from the the UK political front. Yeah, well, I, as readers of the Electronic Intifada will know, I had my press pass to cover the Labor Party conference uh, next week. Now. Um, revoked it was first given to me and then revoked they didn't like some of the things that i wrote basically that's what it comes down to that's a surprise (laughs) right (laughs) um so yeah i mean you know i take it as an occupational hazard of speaking truth to power essentially (laughs) um i mean look it's the serious side is that it's a real threat to media freedom really um but, you know, regardless, I will still be in Brighton, where the Labour Party conference is going to be held. Um, I obviously won't be able to enter the secure area of Labour Party conference, and I won't be allowed to go to Labour Friends of Israel's annual reception, um, as I went to in 2016, to experience all the lovely people there, um, and receive their... <laughs> sure, they had great hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, <laughs> and receive their abuse and whatnot. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been invited to speak at a fringe meeting of Labour Against the Witch Hunt in Brighton, which I will be doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's, I, I at last count, I believe it was 3,200 odd people had signed a petition calling on Labour to reverse its um, removal of my press pass. Um you know, there's still a chance for Labour to listen to those calls. Um, and I will go along and report if they do that. Um, but, uh, wow. you know, this is this is what it is. Unfortunately, I'm one person. It's, it's a, just a symptom of a wider problem with the Labour Party over the last four years. There's this kind of endemic witch hunt. I mean, it, it is a kind of witch hunt because it's... Yeah. Uh, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent. Someone just accuses you of being an anti-Semite and therefore you're an anti-Semite. It really is like that, you know, and there's this kind of bizarre interpretation of identity identity politics being imposed, which is actually an incredibly um, dangerous thing, but it's also actually quite typical of Zionism. Um, our friend Rania Khalik once called Zionism uh, identity politics with an army, 
um, which <laughs> I think is pretty accurate um, because, yeah. you know, there's this kind of twisted thing that's entered the Labour Party and even, you know, parts of what calls itself the Labour Party left over the last four years where it's it's taken as evidence of anti-Semitism is if a Jewish person accuses you of anti-Semitism, therefore, by definition, it is anti-Semitism. So the most bad faith um, pro-Israel false allegation is still taken seriously by a lot of people, you know. Um, right. Just somebody... or How this started out in February 2016 was students at Oxford University had organised and endorsed Israeli Apartheid Week. That was anti-Semitism, you know? That That is what this all stems from. And right. it's all been going in the same direction since then. And, you know, whether I am in the Labour Party or out of the, part, out of the Labour Party, it still affects all of us. It affects the whole of society and national life here. Because... You know, these um, debates that are happening and these this kind of defamation campaign that's happening in the Labour Party is spreading out. And we see that as something I reported on last month about the bike ride, this uh, the great bike ride for Palestine or, or whatever it was called. I can't remember the title of it. Uh, they uh, it was a sponsored bike ride to raise money for medical aid for Palestinians you know, a, a well-known charity and it was focusing on um, mental health for Palestinian children affected by Israeli bombing, you know, just having night terrors and just waking up just afraid of their lives because of the dreadful experiences they've been subject to thanks to the racist apartheid state of Israel. Right. Um, and this was the most benign form of Palestine solidarity, you know, it wasn't some hard left-wing group. Um, you know, they weren't raising money for armed resistance. They weren't um, even doing any kind of protest or or direct action or anything like that. They were they were doing a sponsored bike ride um, to raise money for this charity, and the local council stopped them from using public spaces in the borough um, because they, what they were doing could be interpreted as anti-Semitic, allegedly, under the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance of Def Definition of Anti-Semitism, which has been extra-legitimised by the Labour Party's endorsement. And all, that happened last year precisely because of this witch hunt and because of this hysteria, this manufactured campaign that's going on in the Labour Party. So, you know, it's... It's something really that affects us all and it is something that we have no choice but to try and resist in all ways. So, you know, wow. my, reporting, my reporting will carry on. Good. <laughs> We're all happy <laughs> to hear that. And of course, that weaponization um, and perversion of anti-Semitism is also happening here in the States. I mean, every time Congresswoman Ilhan Omar opens her mouth uh, to say anything, she's uh, accused of being an anti-Semite. Yeah. It's blanketed over people who dare to say that Palestinians are human beings um, and, and, yeah. and should have equal rights and human rights and should not be bombed and confined and ghettoized and, and, and inflicted apartheid on. 
um yeah. but of you know so so and of course this is you all know parado being, yeah. paradoxically it, it the only reason it has such an effect on us is because we actually do care about right. racism yes we we are against anti-semitism yes and we are for equal rights for everybody so when this false allegation is made it does affect us yeah. So um, that's why they keep using it. You know? That's right. Yeah. I mean, this is basically, I mean, you know, someone said to me long ago, they, they can't debate the facts anymore. So they're resorting yeah. to smear campaigns and using anti-Semitism as a cudgel to shut anybody up that they don't want to, to, to speak up. Um, yeah. So thank you, Asa, for, <laughs> for continuing to speak up and report the facts. Um, you know, as we say around the office at EI, you are doing the work uh, that journalists all over Europe should be doing in terms of holding Labour Party accountable, and you're the one facing, uh, you know, the 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 weight of um, of what that you know what happens when someone dares to keep speaking up. You're far too kind, Nora. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, since we're having a mutual appreciation society, um, I could say you know the same for your work. Your work is. Stella, as always, um, and listeners Thanks. should check it out at electronicintifada.net <laughs> slash people slash Nora dash Barrows dash Friedman. I guess, uh, it's right? too much of a mouthful. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, on the uh, podcast blog post that accompanies this broadcast, um, we will, of course, link to the latest on ASA's um, saga around reporting on the Labour Party and the Labour Party conference. Um, and uh, mm. we'll also post a link to the petition um, that is gathering support um, in, in uh, supporting you for getting that press pass. So hopefully that'll happen. Um, but uh, meanwhile, we had the remarkable honor of speaking with a longtime colleague and comrade, Assad Abu Khalil, um, who's a professor at CSU Stanislaus here in California um, and a, a regular contributor to news outlets such as uh, Consortium News. Um, and uh, he talks about the recent Israeli elections, um, Israel's uh, recent attacks on three separate countries in the matter of a few days, um, and, uh, and and the 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 accumulating uh, resistance to Israeli, U.S., and, and Saudi aggression in the region. I think it's a really important conversation. Um, Asa, what, what, was, uh, what was your takeaway from, from Assad's interview, and what can people look forward to? Well, I, I was really pleased to record this interview, and I hope it'll be the first of many that we have with Assad. Um, as always, his mind seems to go at sort of a thousand miles an hour, and it's <laughs> yeah. almost hard to keep up with all his different thoughts and new insights that he gives. Yeah. Um, Assad Abu Khalil is um, somebody who has been a political inspiration to me over the last... Um, I would say 10 to 15 years, I suppose, when, whenever I guess I first came across his blog um, after maybe 2004, 2005, something like that. Yeah. Um, he, for, a long, for the longest time, he wrote the Angry Arab News Service blog, um, which is now sadly, uh, you know, the, the late lamented Angry Arab News Service. <laughs> Um, it kind of lives on 
in spirit on his Twitter feed, but um, it's not quite the same to me. Um, But his writings are still... (laughs) We talk about that a little bit in the podcast. Um, His writings, he still writes his articles at Consortium News and they're they're well worth checking out. He writes for us um, occasionally as well. Um, So um, I'm sure... Assad has got a a great many insights into the Arab world and the entire region and um, his analysis is always thought-provoking. So enjoy the episode. We're going to take a short music break and come back with the interview with Assad. Stay tuned. on the Electronic Intifada podcast today is our friend Assad Abu Khalil. He is a professor of political science at California State University Stanislas and regularly writes and comments on Middle East politics with a media criticism lens. We're happy to have you back on the podcast, Assad. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start by talking about the Israeli elections. Uh, As of this recording, it's still unclear whether war crime suspects Benjamin Netanyahu or Benny Gantz have won or if there will be a third election cycle this year due to a hung parliament. Um, The corporate media here in the States and in Europe and in the liberal political establishments have been pushing a narrative that if Netanyahu is defeated and Gantz wins, everyone will celebrate with a sigh of relief that the corruption in Netanyahu's reign will be over. You know, people will go back to sleep, but the status quo will continue, of course. Uh, and, And no one's bringing up the fact that Gantz oversaw Israel's slaughter of Palestinians in 2014 and will likely push Palestinians further into ethnic cleansing and entrenched apartheid systems. Um, What's your take on the Israeli elections and its impact that no matter who wins will have on Palestinians? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Western coverage and international media coverage is, in fact, not entirely in the direction of hoping for Netanyahu to be defeated. Uh, But there is a substantial segment of the Western media, as well as Arab Gulf media, that is sympathetic to Netanyahu. I mean, I would say Saudi media has been quite solidly sympathetic to Netanyahu's status in the election. And the segment of the American media is is that. I mean, uh, half of this country are Republicans, and the Republican Party is a very close town supporter, advocator of Netanyahu, as has been most of the Democratic leadership of Congress. So... Uh, we don't want to leave the listeners with the impression that Netanyahu has no friends uh, in this country uh, or in the media. Uh, I would say that, I mean, looking at the election from the standpoint of the Arab point of view or from Arabs' point of view, I mean, it's a it's an absurd affair. I mean, this is a contest between war criminals and between racists. Uh, I mean, the notion that there is a qualitative difference 
between Netanyahu on the one hand and his opponents who are humane and two-state solutions on is is totally uh, unrelated to to facts. I mean, in fact, even if you are a supporter of the two-state so-called solution, which I am not, of course, uh, the blue-white uh, list is in no way uh, dedicated to the two states. It hasn't said that. If anything, they are promising more wars if they get elected, and I'm sure they will. If anything, I would say in the next year, if they were to get to power, the opposition, they will have to go to war in order to prove their credentials with Jewish voters. Um, and I also feel that uh, this talk about the increase in Arab voter turnout to 60% or whatever it is, I mean, it is part of the negative mobilization incitement against Arabs, which had a counter effect among them. Uh, many of them went to the polls not so much because they have any faith in this corrupt apartheid political system of Israel, but because they felt provoked by a prime minister who is avowedly, racistly uh, discouraging, suppressing the vote by 20% of the population. I mean, uh, as far as Arabs are concerned, as far as Palestinians refugee camps are concerned, it doesn't make one bit of a difference whether this war criminal or that wins. All of them subscribe to the racism and the war criminal structure of the apartheid state. Uh, but it makes a difference as far as international diplomacy is concerned. So if Netanyahu is replaced, there will be increasing talk about let us revitalize the so-called peace process, which has been a recipe for allowing Israel to commit war crimes, invasion and assaults as much as it did, and all while maintaining the myth that there is an end to all this, which is peace. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the myth of a meaningful difference between Likud and the alternatives have been uh, reinforced among the Arabs by the PLO. It started with Yasser Arafat in the 1980s and 90s, where the PLO office in Paris used to open champagne bottles whenever they thought the Labour Party won. Uh, there is no Labour Party anymore, of course. And the center of gravity, the political spectrum of Israel has gone so far to the fascist right that this is basically a contest between uh, racist fascist right and a milder form of the racist fascist right. Uh, there is no left in Israel. And I think it's a good thing. It is high time that we in the West or around the world stop subscribing to the talk about so-called peace camp in Israel. There never was. And when people talk about the left in Israel or the radical left in Israel, I mean, people always used to tell me when I first came to America about Matspin. And there was this radical Matspin anti-Zionist group in Israel. I mean, we really are talking, and I have studied and written about those people. We're talking about a handful of people, literally. People who can be counted on the fingers of less than two hands. Uh, so now we know Israel for what it is. It is a political spectrum of upper side, segregation, racism, and Jewish supremacy. As I said, you mentioned the Israeli Labour Party um, being, in recent years, effectively wiped out. I believe the the, the the count I saw today of ninety two with ninety two percent of votes counted was that it's down to six seats, which I think was the same as um, the election earlier this year. Um, what is your take on that? What 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 does this signify that the party that founded the apartheid state of Israel, you know, committed some of its worst war crimes, is now historically at such a historical low? What what does that tell us? Well, I mean, I think that the ideological spectrum has changed. And uh, I mean, we should also say that we cannot measure influence in a state 
that is so blatantly racist like Israel with sheer numbers. I mean, if you take the seats that were won by the Joint Arab List, for example, we're talking about, according to the latest, what, 13 seats they got, right, Asa? I, I saw slightly higher than that, but yeah, I'm sure it's around, around that level. I mean, I think it's 13. I, I doubt it's going to be higher, but let's say it's 16, for example, which is their ultimate hope. Let's say it's 16. Who will have more clout and influence in the Knesset and in the Israeli government as a whole? A Jewish political party with six seats or an Arab political party with 16 seats? I mean, yeah, for for sure the Israeli Labour Party because they've already, you know, dis- discounted the Arab uh, Party just on the, the the account that it's not an explicitly um, Zionist party. They're not even that the 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 United La- the Joint List is not even avowedly anti-Zionist because they would be outlawed. You know, they're just non-Zionist. And in fact, they talk about an end to occupation, and by that they mean an end uh, to occupation only of twenty three percent of Palestine. And uh, I mean, I told the leader of that list, uh, Ayman Audi, once he was in America two years ago, and he wrote to me about the uh, possibility of seeing me. And of course, I let him have it in terms of my thoughts about his rhetoric and what he's doing and so on. <laughs> I said, I cannot believe, for example, one time he actually complained that when he runs into Likud members like Netanyahu, they don't even greet them. I mean, look at the level of weakness from which they spring. Basically, they want to have token seats at the table without any clout and power, and they don't mind bragging about that, no power whatsoever. I mean, if they get 20 seats, let's say, 25 seats, will they be privy to the classified documents of the state, for example? Will they be given information like that? I mean, I'm sure they they won't. Uh, I mean, so basically it carries with it only a uh, arithmetic number, but it doesn't come with any real clout or influence. Uh, As far as the decline of the Labour Party. I mean, uh, Jabotinsky's fascism is more in tune with the Israeli public mood. And of course, there has always been a Jabotinsky element within the Labour Party itself. But I think the Israeli voters want to reach the logical conclusion of the fascism that was found on over which Israel was, was founded. And we should also note that the demographic breakdown of the political behavior of Israelis indicate that the use of Israel, unlike, say, the use of the United States, which tend to be much more accepting, say, of gay and lesbian marriage, more accepting of uh, legalization of drugs, more accepting of immigration, the use of Israel are more fascistic than the older generation of Israelis. And for that reason, uh, the Labour Party will continue to be punished. And, uh, and of course, these issues of differences are all about domestic Jewish affairs. They have nothing to do with issues of peace and justice or equality. For Arabs, that is. That's the voice of Assad Abu Khalil uh, with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Assad, let's um, let's shift a little bit and talk about the current push toward aggression on Iran by Israel and the U.S. Um, with Saudi backing and prodding, of course, with these policies and aggressions first ushered in by Obama. Um, you've said that Trump may not want an all-out war on Iran, but that whatever happens now will obviously have dangerous consequences for the region, most of all the people of Yemen. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're what you're looking at right now uh, in terms of Israel's aggression with the U.S. Uh, on Iran? Well, I mean, the United States has been committing acts of aggression uninterruptedly in the last few years. I, get, I mean, if you want to go further, more than that, it'll be a, a larger scope. But they have been attacking targets in uh, Sudan. 
They clearly are involved covertly in the war on Yemen. They have been attacking targets uh, blatantly and bragging about it in Lebanon, in Syria, as well as now in Iraq. And the entire corrupt political system that was set up by the occupiers in Iraq is now largely embarrassed about their inability to even protest at this violent, flagrant violation of their sovereignty. And uh, the United States uh, have 5,000 troops in Iraq. And trust me, they have more influence than the so-called prime minister of that country. Uh, Israel is feeling uh, the ability to commit acts of aggression uh, without any recourse, without any restraint. I mean, that was always the case also. I mean, under Obama, there was never restraint on Israeli violent attacks, and they want to increase that because they feel now Iran is expanding its zone of influence and its military, military presence. And of course, we know that Israel is a very arrogant country. It's a country with massive weapons of mass destruction, and yet it lectures the world about the dangers of the potential, not the actual, the potential nuclear program of Iran. Uh, however, the Saudis, who are now closely aligned with the Israeli occupation state, as well as the UAE, uh, are basically have been lobbying the American government to go to war. Uh, the Iranians, on the other hand, if they are, as it seems likely, behind the attack on uh, oil shipping, as well as the attack on the oil installation in Saudi Arabia, if they were behind it, I mean, they are basically, from their own point of view, fighting back against what they consider to be declaration of war, America's violation of the international treaty, because the nuclear agreement carries the weight of international law as it was adopted with the Security Council. So contrary to the phrasing of American media, when the U.S. decided to violate the agreement, they did not withdraw from the treaty. They basically decided to violate international law. I mean, if I decide to invade another country, it is not like I am uh, getting out of international law. I am violating international law. And Iran felt, which had been adhering to the terms of that agreement, which is international law, uh, that they, they basically were inflicted on with a declaration of war by the United States, whereby the actual people, much more than the government, are suffering from the stiff sanctions that is uh, denying Iran from uh, the right to sell its own oil. For those reasons, they, they wanted to make a message to the clients of United States in the Gulf, to UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular, that we will inflict damage on you if we continue to be cornered and if we continue to suffer from these stiff sanctions. And I think the message came across more in the UAE than in Saudi Arabia. In the UAE, as soon as the shipping was attacked in the Gulf, they rushed to Iran. There were at least five meetings between them. They have announced unilaterally to withdraw from the war on Yemen, which is a war dear to the heart of the Saudi crown prince. And they have been softening the rhetoric about Iran. Uh, the Saudis, however, also seems to get to the point up to a point, because now, today, there's a game changer. The Saudi regime media, including the independent, which is, I mean, uh, Asad, that must be humorous to you, that when we speak about Saudi regime media now, we include not only Ashraf al-Awsat, but the independent. I mean, uh, quite a shift uh, mm. there. Uh, but, ha but that shift has been quite noticeable for the readers of the independent or for uh, the readers of uh, The Guardian as well. Uh, so the independent Arabic has just announced that Saudi fighter jets uh, participated in attacks on Iranian sites inside Syria. That is a game changer because for the first time, Saudi Arabia is taking responsibility for attack on Iranian troops. Uh, that will usher in 
an era of direct confrontation. And most likely, the United States will provide support, but it looks like Trump is resisting all the pressures, including the pressures of the media, to commit this country to war on behalf of Saudi Arabia or Israel. What do you make of um, the state of sectarian agitation in the uh, regime media of the uh, Arab world at the moment? Like, what, what, how? It, I mean, you, you've talked a lot over the last um, decade or so, uh, uh, and uh, on your your blog, your sadly lamented blog. Correct. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. By the way. Um, I'm I'm not happy about that. By the way, <laughs> that you transfer you you've transferred to Twitter, um, as much as I enjoy your tweets. I yeah, but I miss your blog. I said. Oh, thank you it was, very much. It was, but it, the blogs belong it, to the past. <laughs> <laughs> Long live the angry Arab dot blogspot blog. Yeah, I'm adjusting to the new age. Twitter yeah. is the <laughs> new alternative. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah, what, but I mean, you, you, in your writing and so forth, you've talked a lot about um, the Saudi-led campaign um, to kind of instigate sectarianism in the Arab world, and uh, you know, for example, in, in Lebanon, uh, you know, with the, with campaigns against Hezbollah in Saudi-controlled media, um, and you know, carrying on and on through. Um, the war in Syria and so forth. What's the current state of of these sort of agitations, and what or what and are we seeing a an amping up of that with the um, sort of warlike stance that um, the Saudi regime is taking against Iran in the in the last year or two? Uh, as a, we have to say that the sectarian agitation is a characteristic not only of Saudi regime media but also of Qatari regime media. Yeah. And the war in Syria, I would say, some of the propaganda outlets of Qatar, especially Al-Quds al-Arabi and many others, Al-Jazeera notably, have been far more overtly, blatantly sectarian in their agitation characterization than Saudi regime media, as sectarian as they have been. It is fair to say when the U.S. went to Iraq, occupied, invaded Iraq in 2003, there was a calculated, clear, premeditated decision to, to deploy the weapons, the nasty weapon of sectarian divisions and agitation, because they felt, A, they are able in that regard to disarm the regime of Saddam Hussein, which has been a secular regime, and two, it will be useful to the state of Israel because it will allow for the delegitimization of strong, powerful resistance groups like Hezbollah that are engaged in resistance attacks against Israeli occupation when they were occupying the bulk of Lebanon and so on. And they felt this would be a good way to uh, deform or disturb the image of Hezbollah, which used to be quite widely popular among the Arabs around the town 2003. And I have to say that these weapons of sectarian mobilization and warfare have proven to be quite effective and potent. Uh, especially because the other side, Iran, Hezbollah, others, did not know how to fight back. They were taken entirely aback, and they assumed wrongly that if they don't respond to them, they will just go away. They wished them to go away. Now, also have to say that Hezbollah and Iran have difficulty in responding to them because they are sectarian. I mean, the ideology of Iran and of Hezbollah, Wilayat al-Faqih, the rule of the Jewish consul, is a sectarian uh, plan that appeals only to a segment of the Shia population. So they don't have a universal message, say, of communism or socialism. Uh, also, the composition of Hezbollah 
is also almost exclusively Shiite. So it makes it hard for the night. Having said that, they could have easily tried to broaden uh, a front of resistance against Israel to include others, but their attempts in that regard have been very half-hearted and rather symbolic. Uh, so that basically uh, allowed the Saudis to dominate the scene and the Qataris uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, and it remains there. It remains there. You still see blatant sectarian offenses against Alawites, Druze, and Shiites throughout the media. Uh, the other side, however, tried to point out, but the other side are sectarian. But it has to be said that you don't find any speech by Nasrallah, for example, in which he engaged, he doesn't even use, like, uh, try to avoid using Sunnis or Shiites for fear that this would reinforce an image in that regard. So they try to avoid it, but they don't know how to address it. Uh, and as a result, has been successful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other side in the Qatari and Saudi media, for example, every time somebody raises a banner with the name of a Shiite martyr in Syria or elsewhere, they say, see, that's an evidence of their sectarianism. Uh, so uh, Syrian war, the war in Syria and Hezbollah's intervention have given the other side the ammunition to use that against Hezbollah and to uh, attribute their intervention to sectarian considerations. Assad, um, what's what's your analysis of what happened recently with, um, you mentioned Israel's bombing of Lebanon along with Syria and Iraq uh, a few weeks ago, but um, what's your analysis of, of Hezbollah's response to Israeli attacks um, and kind of looking down the line, um, what is what is Israel's um, goal for Lebanon, and and do you think that they that they, you know, would be defeated again, just like they would be defeated in two thousand six? Uh, let me say that uh, I was born in nineteen sixty, so I'm now fifty nine years old. Even though I may look that I was born another uh, two centuries ago, uh, but that's not the thing. <laughs> uh, Nonsense. But, but as I was growing up, I have to say. And I'm from South Lebanon, so we went frequently to my grandparents' house in Tyre, the city of Tyre, the ancient city of Tyre. Uh, I would say every week, without exception, Israel would bomb South Lebanon indiscriminately. They would destroy a refugee camp. I mean, how many of our listeners know that there used to be a refugee camp in Lebanon that was called Nabatiya refugee camp that does not exist, does not exist. Because in 1974, Israel went there, bombed, incinerated the camp entirely, and it now raised to the ground, doesn't exist. Just as Israeli militias destroyed and raised to the ground the refugee camps of uh, Tel Zatar, Jisr al-Basha, and Bayi in East Beirut, uh, just as they committed massacres, their militiamen in Sabra and Shatila in 1982. So there is a long history of that. And back then, Israel used to say, I mean, my grandfather's house, which is probably the oldest house in the city of Tyre, is now condemned. We could not even visit inside because of the damage it has accumulated from successive Israeli bombing over the years. Uh, so it was routine for Israel to bomb at will anytime it wants anywhere in Lebanon. The rules of the game changed after 2000, after the humiliating withdrawal of Israeli occupation forces from the bulk of South Lebanon, but not from all of it, under successive attacks by resistance movements. It started with communists and secularists like SSMP and others, but later on it culminated with a much larger scale and much more powerful resistance 
against Israel occupation that was mounted by Hezbollah. And in 2006, there was another game changer with the humiliating defeat of the Israeli army. I mean, if it wasn't for Western Zionist media and Arab Gulf media, the world and especially Arabs would be more appreciative of the fact that the defeat and the humiliation of Israel was not like no other. Israel never served, uh, suffered the humiliation it suffered of, of 2006, not even 1973, because in the first two days of the war, it was a victory for the Arabs, but of course later with the surrender and the collaboration of Anwar Sadat, it was turned into a defeat for the Arabs and a victory for the Israelis eventually. Uh, this was an all-out humiliation for Israel. And after that humiliation, there were no new rules of the game of deterrence in Lebanon, whereby the Israelis did not dare attack Lebanon. And Hezbollah agreed not to attack Israel, provided the Israelis adhere to those rules. Now, those mm -hmm. rules have created a situation of peace and prosperity in South Lebanon that it never know, knew uh, since 1948. And just as in the 1960s and 70s, Israel used to say, we have no problem with Lebanon, we just want the PLO out of Lebanon. Well, the PLO is out of Lebanon. What do they want now? Hezbollah out of Lebanon? Well, Hezbollah is made of Lebanese. They are not Palestinians. They are the people of South Lebanon, the bulk of people of South Lebanon. What do they yeah. want? If they want to evacuate the people of South Lebanon and take them somewhere else, it's not going to happen. So that's why Israel is stuck with a situation whereby if it attacks, it knows it will suffer humiliation. And the old Mossad and Israeli military intelligence model that we will be able to achieve, to intimidate Arabs psychologically by virtue of achieving quick, decisive victories. That decisive victory was so elusive in 2006 that it was in favor of the other side. It is for those reasons, Israel is on the one hand frustrated. It feels it needs to teach Hezbollah a lesson. On the other hand, it knows it cannot guarantee victory. It cannot obtain yet another humiliation. And for that reason, it is trying to test the water. It attacked Hezbollah uh, target inside Syria, and it also attacked with drones, and the missions of these drones are still unknown, and they were brought down by guns. And uh, Hezbollah responded back with an attack on Israeli targets. Uh, most likely, Israel lied about it, as they do routinely, with a military sensor that can shape the coverage about Israel militarily and intelligence-wise, not only in the Israeli press, but also in the uh, Western press. Uh, so now mm -hmm. I think Israel is more likely to adhere to the rules of the game. They are intimidated and they know they cannot achieve victory in the next round. Yeah, it, it, it's very true what you're saying about uh, the defeat Hezbollah inflicted on Israel in 2006. Um, I was living in the West Bank uh, in 2006 during that war, and um, it's interesting as well. You remember about you, you mentioned about the success of the sectarian agitation campaign by the Saudis and the Qataris and, and other Gulf regimes, and the successes it had had. Because at the time in the West Bank, there was you know universal uh, Palestinian support for Hezbollah, you know, and um, it was it was. Um, you know, it was just the resistance and people was had absolute support for it. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I'm told now by one Palestinian friend who told me that it's things have changed now. You know, uh, obviously there, there is still support for Hezbollah among Palestinians, but it's more divided after what happened in 
uh, Syria because of and because of these kind of sectarian agitation campaigns. Um, uh, you're actually I think right, that, but uh, yeah. you'll be surprised as that you will find there's more support for Hezbollah among Palestinians of 1948 than you will find in some part of the West Bank in Gaza. And I also have to say that Hamas has been a receptor as well as a propagator of sectarian rhetoric in the last several years. And even though they recently reconciled with Iran and they are now getting back more aid from what I read from Iran and so on, and their ties with Hezbollah are restored and so on, and they are trying to restore even ties with the Syrian regime, and yet the sectarian rhetoric Mm. on which many Hamas members have been brought up continue unabated on social media. I mean, I gave an example of that only two weeks ago. I mean, a blatantly sectarian by one of the leaders of Hamas who is professor of religion in Gaza University and... uh, that hasn't changed. What did the professor say? I mean, he was warning about the dangers to the nation from these Shiites, and he used a pejorative terms about them and so on. And he said the nation should be aware of them. And one is thinking, like, you live under occupation, surrounded uh, with a siege of Gaza on all sides yeah. by Israel and his collaborators, and you are worried about uh, Shiite, the danger from Shiite doctrine. and this- Yeah, that's very sad. I, I remember, again, in the West Bank, dur- during the whole... Um, conflict between Hamas and Hezbollah there was one particular incident where uh Mahmoud Abbas was having this kind of big uh rally of of really his sort of supporters and thugs um and he was kind of agitating them against Hamas um and uh it was reported at the time they started chanting against Hamas calling them Shiites you know this 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 kind of strange agitation i i think to um Abbas's credit, at least, he, he, he kind of discouraged that. But um, This first had we were... its occurrence. I didn't know about that occasion with Mahmoud Abbas, Asa. But the first time this happened was under the notorious thuggish character of Muhammad Dahlan. He held mm. a massive rally in Gaza in which people were paid to attend, as he always does, given his right. UAE support uh, for his role. And people started chanting Shiites, Shiites against Hamas and so on. Uh, it happened elsewhere, but that's the first occurrence. Yeah, I mean, so it, 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 these kind of uh, sectarian divisions are, are really kind of sad and dangerous, and and they they really kind of play into the sort of um, typical uh, imperialist divide and rule plans we see uh, in the region. No doubt, but, but the thing is, I mean, it, it's a double or triple edged sword if you engage mm. as the US and its allies have engaged. In uh, since 2003 in this weapon. I mean, it's a separate sword because on the one hand, uh, yes, you can undermine support for Hezbollah, which is a problem, big problem for Israel because of the humiliation suffered at its hand. But on the other hand, what it does, it's on the one hand, it uh, solidifies the ranks of the other side, of the people you want to uh, fight against, right? So as a result of that campaign, I mean, if you are a Shiite in Lebanon, what's your recourse? If you want to support alternative Hezbollah, you are much less likely now because they are cornering you as a Shiite. I mean, as Hannah Arendt said, if they're fighting you as a Jewish person, you will fight back as a Jewish person. And that happens yeah. to the entire Shiites of the Middle East. And the second part is, if you are going to use that weapon, who are the people who are going to emerge as practitioner of that sinister weapon? And they're going to be the fanatic group of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others. And it's for that reason, the Syrian war have witnessed the use and the support to these groups by the likes of the Qatari regime and Saudi regime and others, because they use them in that in that campaign. 
Well, we have a few minutes left. Um, Asad, what are you watching closely uh, these days in Western media and in the Gulf media? Um, what do you think people should be keeping an eye on right now? Well, I mean, I think the war in Yemen is really amazing to watch. I mean, we have to remember, regardless of one's judgment about the Houthis, and the Houthis, I mean, I'm no fan of their ideologies. I mean, they want to create an MMA. I don't want an MMA anywhere. I don't want any religious state or uh, rule and so on. Uh, but if you judge it as guerrilla warfare example, I mean, those people have done what I would only compare it to the Viet Cong, basically. I mean, they had faced an international array of forces, the likes of which had never been assembled. And the way they came out on top is something that will be studied in the military academies in reference to guerrilla warfare worldwide. I mean, with very primitive weaponry and without much resources and with situations of near starvation, they were able to humiliate all these international forces. And remember, the United States was a party to this coalition of aggression from the very beginning in the Trump, in the Obama administration. And uh, Samantha Power, which is now running, posing as an idealist in her new book and so on, she was the one who shielded and protected the Saudi regime, along with her dear friend, the ambassador of Saudi Arabia at the United Nations, from any recrimination or sanctions by the UN for their aggression in Yemen. And yet the Houthis fought this war and were able to take it out to faraway places in Saudi Arabia. And they have not been defeated and they have not surrendered and they seem to strengthening their ranks. And there is no evidence whatsoever, by the way, of any changing situation of support changing among the Yemenis themselves in areas under their control. There are no uh, you know, examples or indications of uh, resentment or protest against the rule and so on. Uh, so I think this is what's really significant. And the outcome of the war in Yemen will determine the outcome of many things in the Middle East. I mean, the Saudis have learned a lesson. Remember, this was a war that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia thought would be his crowning achievement as he prepares to become king. He assumed it's going to be a few weeks. The Americans even assume it's going to be a few weeks war and it will all be over. And look at it now. Uh, the UAE has left. The Americans are trying to distance themselves, but not really from that war. And the Saudis now are being humiliated with that attack on the largest oil installation in all of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the outcome of that war has already determined that Saudi Arabia's attempt to rearrange the region in its, its, its mirror image has failed miserably. Um, well, I really want to ask you about Syria. But I, I think we can have a whole uh, podcast on, on this. Um, and I think we probably should get you back on and um, talk about um, Syria in general and the last, uh, well, you know, it's getting on for a decade now. Um, and maybe you can just ha give us a, a, a quick comment of what you think... Um, what you make of the current situation in Syria. Well, I mean, my views on Syria are quite unpopular, as you know, and it uh, created more enemies uh, for me, but uh, that's not important. Uh, I mean, I do not view the victory of one side as a victory for, for, for Syrian people. I don't think the Syrian people will win if the regime prevails. I don't think the Syrian people will prevail, uh, will win if the so-called rebels will prevail. Uh, 
uh, I mean, the regime seems to be expanding its zone of influence, but also the regime seems to be trying to go back to the rules of oppression that the Ba'athist regime has practiced from the beginning. There is absolutely no signs that the regime is either willing or even capable of reforming itself or granting its citizens a degree of uh, liberties that they have been deprived from ever since the uh, Ba'ath came to power in Syria. Having said that, I also should say that the rebels themselves, the model of government and foreign policy they've established, it doesn't bode well at all for the Syrian people if they ever were to live under a government by them, neither in terms of uh, foreign policy nor uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, they are all clients of the Gulf regime. Uh, some of them are even, uh, some of these opposition figures uh, have been uh, not unsympathetic to Israeli occupation. They are silent on the Golan, just as the regime has not done anything about the Golan since its occupation in 1967. Uh, uh, and also, uh, they don't tolerate, uh, you know, uh, liberties or protests either. So I am, I mean, I'm pessimistic about Syria for the time being, no matter who prevails in that conflict. We will certainly get you back on to talk more about Syria and, of course, everything else that's happening in that part of the world very soon. Asad Abu Khalil, you are a professor of political science at California State University, Stanislas, um, and you are on Twitter at uh, Asad Abu Khalil. Um, we will link to your Twitter page. I wish we could still link to your Angry Arab um, blog site, but maybe we will, just for posterity's sake. But but you write regularly. At... You can see he has a defunct blog. That yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you also write regularly at uh, Consortium News now, right? That's correct. I have a bi-nightly right. uh, article for them, yes. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll link to that um, and your Twitter. Uh, and uh, Asad, thank you as always, for the work that you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. And thank you for hosting me. Thanks. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>